that was part of like me having an oh wow moment that uh, workplaces really could be incredibly inspiring. Welcome to Architect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia Taylor Hochberg, and this week I'm speaking with architect Clive Wilkinson, known for his high profile office designs. After moving to Los Angeles in the early 1990s and working in Frank Gehry's office, Clive started his own firm, Clive Wilkinson Architects, and has since worked with such big-name clients as Google, the BBC, 20th Century Fox, and Microsoft. I spoke with Clive about the development from cubicle farms to serendipity machines and his thoughts on co-working spaces. Also, turns out he's not a huge fan of the Apple spaceship. So to start things out, let's talk about the house that you built, I believe, right after getting the commission to design Google's expansion of their headquarters in Mountain View. There was a New York Times piece a while back that referenced to the house as the, the house that Google built, um, that <laughs> at, otherwise that, it, that I'm sure you'd love to. Uh, <laughs> to uh, Do you have another title, a working title for the house that goes against that? <laughs> the house that Google built, I love it. No, that's a great title. <laughs> I guess there's some truth in it. I think I bought the lot just before we won the job for Google. And uh, sure enough, it may have assisted in paying the bills for the construction. I also, or at least in that piece, it was kind of structured as the firm, which you started in Los Angeles in 1991, had kind of gone through some ebbs and flows. And the point at, the, at getting the Google project was kind of a triumph in the course of the firm's work. So that in the, in the having the opportunity after that fact to build your own house was a, something of a exciting and very um, yeah. high potential opportunity. But now you're selling that house. Yes. Do you feel any remorse or sadness that you're now leaving this this project? Oh no, not not no no not at all. I'm, I'm excited to leave it. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, bear in mind I'm building another house and I'll move into that one, but I don't like to stay anywhere too long. So that's one thing. So ten years is enough in one house, and and I like building things. So it just sort of makes sense. I think I'll, I'll probably build another house and then I won't be there terribly long either. And so leaving, do you suddenly see things in kind of a different light that maybe you can adapt to future design decisions where you see things as maybe working it differently now that you've lived in it for so long? I think it's definitely true that you learn from every project you do. I don't think that, I, I don't personally think I made many mistakes, but I think that you learn other things, other factors, you learn about factors that you didn't entirely consider you know, when you go from one project to the next. And, and so you know, the, the more you build and the more you do design, the more you do, uh, you do get very good at being very inclusive about all of the issues and certainly about uh, the important issues in design. So I'm quite happy with you know, being older and more experienced right now because I sort of feel like one can do things really quite well and very efficiently and very fast. I mean, I'd been, been in business, well, been uh, in the design world for a long time when I did that house. That was 2000 and, uh, finished in 2006. I first started working, uh, graduated in 1980, a long time ago. And I did my first uh, remodel of an apartment in London for myself in, in 84. So I'd lived in different, uh, and, and that was, even though I hadn't built a house as such, that was living in a space I designed way back then. And then, of course, one has done you know, many pro multiple projects in between. So it was really quite easy designing the house uh, for myself. I think I had a funny sense of guilt about doing it uh, in the office. And it actually, in some respects, got less attention than it should have got. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I think the decisions came very fast, very easily, and they were good ones. I mean, I, I enjoyed living in it for 10 years. It's, it's certainly an easy house to live in. So what lessons will you be taking from there that are going into the new house? Yes, it's uh, in construction uh, just as of a week ago. It's very different because it's, it's actually a hillside type of situation with, with views. So it doesn't have the kind of uh, the introverted nature of a uh, house on the flatland. And I think that introverted thing is positive, uh, you know, uh, the sort of court, courtyard. My house is kind of like a courtyard model in as much as uh, you focus into the center of, of, of uh, you know, a captured bit of outdoor space. So it's different when you're in a hillside situation. You're really looking beyond the, the, the lot, the site, and uh, the emphasis is very different. But they both are, are, are valuable urban models, I think. And particularly, particularly the, the flatland one, the, the courtyard one, which is what the Norris Drive house is. So I'd like to also ask, because I think most architects um, are going to know your work for office design and various office projects that you've mm. done. And regarding specifically the time when you first started your practice in the early 90s, I wanted to know if you recall the first moment you started working in the office world and started trying to think of like a, a guiding principle for the kinds of office spaces that you wanted to make. Do you recall like an inspiration moment or kind of a first moment for that kind of thought? In some ways, I don't because I first started working on offices so long ago. <laughs> in 1980, I got my first job and I was thrown right into doing something that was part uh, public gallery and part offices in London. And then I did a couple of very large TV studios jobs, which involved a lot of workplace in the early 80s, which were quite crazy. They were very ambitious and influenced by the Memphis movement that was happening then. So we were kind of experimenting a little flamboyantly way back then. So flamboyancy, referring to like bright colors and kind of bold lines that you see in a lot of your current and ongoing work. Well, that stuff was postmodern. I, I, I'm kind of almost ashamed to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dirty word now. It's a dirty word now. It was, it was, it was, we were all trapped in it. I mean, the best of us were kind of trapped in that era. And I, re I kind of resented it at the time because I just knew it, it, it was kind of a, a fashion that, that had to end. But there was so much pressure to do it because everyone wanted it. And uh, my boss certainly wanted it. <laughs> and it, ended, it actually was one of the reasons I left uh, London and, and, and that practice in the end is because the postmodern thing was just too much. And I came to the States in 1919, worked for Frank Gehry. And the first client that I was given was Shire Day. And I was a project uh, architect on uh, the interiors of the binocular building that uh, Frank had designed. And I learned an immense amount from the client itself, TBWA Shire Day. Actually, it was only called Shire Day in those days because they really had an amazingly loose and creative outlook towards the workplace. They were all about ideas and uh, living and dying by ideas. So I learned far more, really, from that commercial client than I did uh, in my architectural training. And you're, so you're saying, of course, there's some degree of interpreting the intent and the ambience of the workplace into the actual design. But I'm wondering, because now we have so much focus on workplace design just as in architectural media, of like whatever the most beautiful photos are, they're just put out everywhere. It's very hard to not have your office, if you are a big company, opened up to design criticism of sorts. Was there that much kind of expectation for those kinds of critiques to occur back in those early days? Well, no, the amazing thing in those days was there was nothing like that around at all. There was no creative office space. It was a complete vacuum. And, and, and Shire Day had also come from a 
a sort of a, a uh, I think a bit of a non-environment when they were downtown LA, and, and then they had Frank Gehry do first do a warehouse conversion as a temporary space before they moved into the binocular building, and that space was was pretty radical. Jay Scheidt was very into art and kind of experimentation, and uh, Frank did some great things in that warehouse. And that's, that was part of like me going, you know, having an oh wow moment that uh, workplaces really could be incredibly inspiring. So was there something that you took specifically from Shayate's like own managerial structure that then informed the actual built space? Yes, because they had, as I said, you know, such an engagement with the priority of ideas and knowledge sharing and about how people uh, communicate and how to uh, really kind of get that friction and pr- provocation within the workplace. Jay Scheidt said something uh, at one point, which I thought was, to me, was quite eye-opening at the time. He said, I don't want people to be comfortable. I want them to be provoked in the workplace. And there was such an, an established kind of mindset at the time that, oh, everyone in the workplace needs to be comfortable. Everything's about, you know, supporting people so they can be, you know, as comfortable as possible, et cetera, et cetera. And he was saying the exact re- reverse. And some of the uh, the executives as well, I remember uh, having a discussion with the president of Shiat Day about his personal office and uh, the guest chairs in the personal office. And he was saying, oh, I like those those particularly kind of uh, uncomfortable looking hard guest chairs when we're looking at some, some images. And, and, and I pointed out that, you know, those are very uncomfortable. No one would be able to sit in there for more than five minutes. And he said, yes, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want anyone for more than five minutes. So anyway, it was it was through kind of learning about how the organism of a, of a, a business-like advertising works, that, that, uh, you know, that was a big eye-opener. The old kind of routine ideas of, of cubicles and all the rest uh, were really kind of quite dreadful, and uh, it was time to, to you know, get out of that world. We cover so much nowadays on the concept of the serendipity machine as a mm. model to aspire to in workplace design, that you're not necessarily just trying to keep people uncomfortable enough to retain a degree of creative edge, but you're actually trying to create spaces that socially engineer interaction in a way that is inspiring. And it, it sounds almost like, you know, kind of hoopla at some point where it's like, how much can you actually completely change the way that an employee and a um, boss or so or, or within a collaborative organization, how they work just by, you know, moving things around within a space that hasn't that you can't completely bulldoze or so. But that's where we see this kind of ongoing trend of giant yeah. open desk spaces. And I feel like because you've been involved in the in that kind of area of the practice for long enough that you have seen the progression from the staid cubicle world into this kind of new expectations of what is actually possible in the workplace. But I'm wondering, what do you feel is actually helpful about having those open spaces? Can you like articulate what you think is actually necessary about that? Well, I think there's actually a kind of a, a web of almost invisible infrastructure that is applied to any really well-working workplace. And the openness is just one factor. The value of the circulation, the movement, what drives it, the meaningful destinations within the workplace, the things that encourage the friction between people and the serendipity need to be built into it. Just having transparency is, you know, in itself is not enough. So I really think it's actually quite a complex thing, and it varies very much from company to company because their you know, particular DNA is always different. There's always, a, you know, diff- leadership plays different roles in different companies. There's a load of subtleties about it. So I think it's quite a, a sophisticated issue. And we've often been involved in what's called 
functional inconvenience ideas in planning, where you actually remotely locate things that should be actually adjacent because you want to encourage movement and crossover. We did a project for J. Walter Thompson in New York some years ago where we, we had, uh, this is before we really learned about this notion, where we arranged everything with perfect adjacency. So everyone would have the shortest possible communication between uh, the people that mattered to them. And then we realized that that would, would uh, stultify a real, you know, genuine kind of cross-platform knowledge sharing. And the, the uh, president of the company made a strategic decision to take out a key component from the middle of that and put it right on the periphery so that people would be forced to travel, you know, multiple floors. We had internal staircases to get to, you know, the uh, people and resources they needed. And uh, that was very successful. So you did post-occupancy surveys through the company, and, and that's how you determined like whether or not this was really working? We don't generally do actual surveys, primarily because the clients, when it comes down to it, are not particularly interested in, in funding that. But we definitely follow the, you know, what's going on and, and do visit the, uh, visit the firms later and get their feedback. So building off of this kind of current atmosphere of, of office design, we also see that now, since there's so many more opportunities for people to work from home, and also maybe not opportunities, but economic yeah. necessities, that people are kind of tailoring the residential space and the residential design to be kind of more of a hybrid model between residential and office design. Is that something you considered with, this might be like the worst thing you would ever want to consider for your own home, but do you see that kind of trend also orbiting in your own work? Well, I think that there's, okay, there's many functional things that drive the argument for telecommuting, working from home and everything. And primarily has to do with, you know, children and families and things like that. And that particularly affects often, uh, you know, the mothers and the family. So I think that's definitely something that needs to be supported. But we are also very strong believers in the essential value of face-to-face that the amount that's communicated between people uh, in the same room is just huge by comparison to the misunderstandings that can happen on phone calls and, uh, you know, to via kind of more attenuated kind of communication like emails and texts and things. So, and I think that going, you know, going into the future, it's, it's becoming increasingly acknowledged that people really do need to be in each other's presence working. So what about these more, I'd say, maybe compromising models of, say, like so-called co-working spaces or spaces that allow for people to save a little bit of money by working alongside other people who have perhaps work in a similar industry but are not actually their colleagues, but that have that potential for, say, inspiring random run-ins or um, just having that atmosphere that they can, of energy and um, production that they can kind of be a part of. What is your opinion on those spaces? Do you think that that kind of model of, of office space can actually be tenable? Oh, I actually find that an, an immensely exciting model, uh, the co-working model. I mean, I don't think it has, uh, from our business point of view, it has no value to us because uh, it's very unlikely we will be, ever be designing co-working spaces. But I do think that it's a major value to the, the sort of sparking of uh, small entrepreneurial businesses. I do think that the social aspect of it is very valuable. And I think that it, it kind of it makes real incubators for you know new small businesses and for businesses that want to uh, leverage uh, multidisciplinary partnerships and things like that. I can think of lots of people in the media world who you know need different types of skills. 
who are often provided by you know almost freelance people. And I think if they can co-locate in, in a, a co-working space, it's just a great new facility. And I also think that going you know going forward in the future, it's going to be increasingly valuable. I think you know in 20, 30 years time, they're going to be really quite massive, potentially quite massive provisions of this type of workspace with a lot of uh, smaller nimble, you know, agile uh, businesses that are able to provide highly specific services to, you know, to the bigger uh, organizational needs. So I think it's great. I'm a big fan of it. So in terms of bridging the gap then between, because those spaces do seem to have their own design conceit, and at least we've seen from organizations like WeWork, there is a very explicit and very for, uh, thought out approach to how the spaces are designed as in reference to pre-existing office structures and these other themes that we've been talking about. So do you feel like that the reason why it wouldn't be, you know, so relevant to your business is because there simply aren't so many other overreaching organizations that build places like that, that that could be said, like you, your client would be WeWork of of sorts? Oh, I just think that, uh, I think the formula for a co-working space is something that can be cracked uh, if it hasn't been cracked already very successfully and will will kind of gradually evolve as the user's uh, needs are become, you know, kind of uh, more evolved. So, yeah, I don't think it's a complex model that necessarily requires the kinds of skills that we have. I think we do, we, we are more valuable when it comes to larger organizations that, that have particular structural challenges and things like that. So one particular project I wanted to ask you about was the Superdesk project you did, or rather the Superdesk yeah. desk you did for the Barbarian Group. What in the design process did you come to to make you think this is what this space needs? Um, smaller companies tend to operate like extended families. And uh, not that Barbarian was that small, but uh, we normally think of companies in the range of kind of, you know, 20 to sort of 80 people or something like that are really extended families. And, and we feel that those types of companies don't have the, the same challenges as very large companies. And, and, and the, the primary challenge with a very large company is that individual employees can very easily feel that they are disconnected and alienated from any particular community. They feel like a tiny cog in a massive wheel. So that, that's one of the challenges that uh, you know, we like to kind of try and address when working with large companies. Small companies don't have that problem. They work on a, on a sort of a network of trust and familiarity. Everyone more or less knows everyone else. So that the, the organism is very different. With the Barbarian Group, we, we, you know, we had that type of community. And they're also very creative people. And also a certain level of homogeneity in that they were all young and uh, definitely up for an agile, mobile way of working. But they also had a lot of kind of heavy equipment because of their, you know, their, the type of work they did, uh, digital work. So they couldn't really move around the desk too much. But they, did, they certainly didn't require the sort of privacy and kind of have hierarchical issues and all that. So we put the idea to them about, well, what if everyone was just around one big table? And they were like, yeah, that sounds very cool. And then we, we, we had done projects with very large tables in the past. We did one for 200 people at Mother in London in uh, uh, around about the same time as Google, actually. And um, that one we made out of concrete, but we also realized we had to break the table. When a table gets very, very big, you end up by having to break it because circulation would become uh, kind of ridiculous, you know, getting around the table. So when we thought about one table with Barbarian, we said, well, if we want to have a continuity in the surface, we're actually going to have to either crawl under the table 
or else lift the table up so you can walk underneath it. So it became a sort of a kind of a ridiculous logical exercise in saying, saying this is how the table has to be configured and then that turned into a whole structural, how do we support this thing, how do we make it into something. And the, the opportunity of the spaces underneath just emerged out of that. It's like, oh, wow, there are cool spaces underneath. Let's turn them into meeting spaces and hangout space. So it was, it, it's interesting how a kind of a slightly ridiculous proposition can end up by going down a route that uh, becomes very uh, interesting. And you said that that idea emerged kind of directly from conversations with how the organization operated. Can you tell me a little bit about the kind of research that you do and the kind of conversations that you have with the clients before setting out to design? Well, we try very hard to get to know them as well as we can, and we try and involve as many people, certainly in the leadership position in these in these companies, in uh, understanding their DNA, how they work, what the challenges are, what their aspirations are, how them, they see themselves as a community, how they want to improve relationships and, and, and uh, connections uh, within their uh, organization. And we do this mostly sort of through combination of, of traditional programming work, but also a visioning sessions with a client. And that's, it's not super scientific. A lot of it is kind of conjectural and circumstantial, and it just emerges out of conversations, really. But we make sure we have the time for that, and, and we make sure that the, we, that the conditions are right in as much as everyone's like very relaxed and, uh, and eager to contribute to, to you know, getting a vision together of, of uh, where they want to go. And, you know, it ends up with every project being unique, which is great. You know, I don't believe we have a, an obvious signature to what we do because, uh, you know, these, the conversations with the clients really determine the result. And that way, of course, you also get uh, incredible buy-in from the clients because they, they recognize the product as, as theirs in the end of the day. In fact, we, we, I think we sometimes have a bit of a problem with clients believing they did it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to pay you. We did this ourselves. Yeah, right. I know. I've had that. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm also wondering then, because you do have a fair amount of pretty high profile, well-known works in Los Angeles in particular, I'm wondering if you feel that, that you're in some way contributing to kind of a particularly LA or Los Angeles kind of approach to the office or to the workplace, or say Southern California, if we can open it up a little bit. I think that's, I think it's fair to say, I think it comes from an ethos that's kind of common in uh, Southern California, where experimentation is encouraged. I, I felt when I first came here that one of the great liberating things about being in Los Angeles was that there wasn't a powerful pre-existing urban culture. There really isn't. It wasn't at, uh, certainly in 1990. And uh, I'd come from a very powerful pre-existing urban culture being the city of London, where there are immense amount of constraints about what you build and how you, you know, go about it, what messages you're creating and what the details are like, et cetera, et cetera. And this city is extremely um, supportive of experimentation. And, and it doesn't take things uh, too seriously. It doesn't take itself too seriously. So I think it's encouraged a lot of great work. Uh, and a lot of the best modern architectures happened in this place. So, you know, we're proud to be part of that you know, kind of long tradition. And I think it's going to you know, continue into the uh, foreseeable future because this is also a unique city in that it's a, a multinodal city. And that flexibility around uh, having a multinodal uh, urban uh, structure means that your ability to expand and contract is, is much greater than particularly in growing compared to uh, you know, single-centered uh, cities. It does allow certainly for a greater flexibility and diversity within the greater space. And you're not beholden to any given style, especially because the weather is so nice. So you don't have yeah. to worry about well, the mudroom of sorts. Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to ask about LA in particular because 
one of the projects that, you, that your firm has also done is maybe a little bit less common to your work is was the exhibition design for Never Built Los Angeles, um, which yeah. was a super, super popular exhibition posted by the Architecture and Design Museum in 2013, I believe. Yeah. So I'd love to hear, did you kind of come, I, I believe the curators of that reached out to you. Um, how did you first learn about the project and, and what were your kind of first thoughts about doing it? Well, the curators, Sam and Greg, uh, approached us and said, you know, hey, would you like to do this? Uh, I don't think we got any money, but we'd love you to. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, well, you know, we've been wanting to do a pro bono project and this could be perfect. Uh, you know, nothing could be more exciting than, you know, looking at uh, how to represent, you know, kind of always kind of lost dreams of the city. So I think it was a brilliant idea, and I, I think uh, that they're going to go and do more in other cities in North America. But it was it was very exciting to be part of that. But was that was it a particular challenge or so? I know you said you wanted you were excited to do it as kind of a as a pro bono piece, but had you had any explicit desires before to work more in exhibition design? Um, good question. I'm actually trying to think back whether I've ever done any exhibition design before. No, I think it's probably one of the first ones. But it's not a very difficult thing. And it's very much about the story of what you what you're representing. I think one of the you know fun things we were able to do kind of right off the bat was to you know cover the whole floor with a, with a map of the city uh, from back in the 1940s. And you know things that really kind of uh, drove home the, the, the sense of place and, and fragmentation and network, which are kind of inherent in the city. And then uh, the material, of course, was was pretty great. We had a lot of uh, hair-raising moments though, because a lot of the material was flux right up until the end, you know, there was, you know, two days before and we didn't even know whether a certain model we were actually going to be able to get for the exhibition. So it, it was, uh, um, it had to be pretty flexible about uh, how we, we structured everything. Yeah. And the space itself, since Architecture and Design Museum have moved to a different location, but the space itself, as I recall, it is a little small and kind of a little cramped. It, it can cause yeah. some like strange uh, difficulties with circulation and actually exhibiting, giving the, the pieces room to breathe. Right, right. Yeah, and, we, and we, we sort of planned against some of the problems there by just shutting out, you know, I think pretty much all the retail frontage and using those vertical surfaces uh, as exhibition surfaces. So we, I think we were able to make it feel like it was a bit bigger than, it, than the space really was. So I also just have to ask, and you are free to um, not comment if you don't like, but do you have any opinion on the new Apple campus design, the spaceship? I have been asked about the spaceship before, and I don't think I said very complimentary things. My concern about it is that it, it derives, it's derived from some idealistic concept that really has nothing to do with uh, the notion of community other than its circle. And it's the, the radius of the circle is so large that the distance from one side of the circle to the other from a walking point of view, is a negative aspect, I think. It's just too big. You know, you'd expect there to be, you know, serendipitous kind of friction and stuff between the different organizations within Apple, the different departments. And if they have to, you know, circulate around the perimeter of the circle, well, you've got a really long route between departments and it's strung out in a long line, which, which actually makes it not very much different to having an incredibly long, thin building. And then the space, and as I said, the space in the middle is, is just not a quick and easy thing to traverse. I personally think it's, uh, it's a bad model. I'm actually very for the, uh, the Google model of uh, Thomas Heatherwick and Bjarke Ingels. I think that uh, kind of parasol with an immense amount of flexibility underneath it is a much better model for tech companies, which uh, really need a, a lot of flexibility in the, in the expansion and contraction to you know, grow and, and shrink departments and things like that. 
Well, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. And thank you for sharing your thoughts about office design and, and coming on the podcast. Sure, Amelia. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions one-to-one with Clive Wilkinson. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. Make sure to not miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. You can keep up with podcasting news from Archonnect on Twitter through at ArcSessions or hashtag ArcConnectSessions, or you can email us through connect at ArcConnect.com. Thanks again for listening to One to One. <laughs>